Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producer is Peter Merserlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, simulated pilot training has come a long way, plus how Customs and Border Protection hopes to streamline inspections of import shipments. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the General Services Administration is weeks away from releasing the solicitation for the next great multiple award contract, Oasis Plus. The final request for proposals will be a culmination of thousands of comments and feedback from industry and government, as well as two draft solicitations. Tiffany Hickson is the Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Professional Services and Human Capital Categories in the GSA's Federal Acquisition Service. She tells Executive Editor Jason Miller about how the final RFP will reflect the last 10 months of work to get Oasis Plus correct. Given the amount of feedback that we got, it took us most of January and February to kind of process that. And so then we issued a second draft RFP on March 6th. And the intent of that draft really was to say, this is what we heard. Here are the things that changed. Uh, here's why we changed them, you know, based on feedback that we had received um, from an industry. And we we did host uh, an industry day on March 15th, really to walk all of the offers through what was in the second draft, what we're trying to accomplish through some of the strategy changes. And we had about 2,700 uh, attendees um, at that event, which was really spectacular. I'm really glad that folks participated. And we're still getting uh, feedback from industry in on that second draft and are folding, you know, are l- crossing our T's, dotting our I's, uh, getting these last minute changes into the final RFP so we can get ready to release it. And you know, I'm going to ask the question of what is your goal to release the final RFP for any Oh, we're, we are at the cusp uh, of issuing the, the final RFP. Um, we're just getting through our, some final clearances. There are some pretty unique features in the contract uh, that required some special attention from our senior procurement executives. So we are working and getting through the, those final reviews. And once that's complete, we'll be issuing the, the RFP. So really very, very soon, within weeks. I want to go back to something, though. You, As you said, you learned a lot from draft one to draft two. You've learned a lot, again, hopefully from to draft to the final draft. Generally speaking, what are some of those big changes that you you took from industry and you applied to whether it's the second draft or if you can give us anything about the the final draft uh, that will how that will look like and how that was influenced by the feedback? Yeah, there are a couple of areas that we asked for specific feedback on. A lot of the feedback that we got really affirmed some of the the strategy that we have baked into the draft RFP. Uh, We asked for feedback on a a 10-year period of performance. You know, how does industry feel about that? And we got positive feedback, so we left that in. The NAICS strategy, and I know this is like some hardcore procurement mumbo jumbo here, but NAICS codes are really important uh, to ordering contracting officers in in terms of, and to the procurement itself. NAICS codes really drive the domain that they're going to compete task orders in. And we spent a lot of time working through, do we have the right NAICS codes aligned to the functional areas Domains are really our version of functional areas in the RFP and spent a lot of time with industry talking through that. Uh, The feedback that they gave us ranged from substantive 
would like, hey, we think you forgot these particular NAICS codes that really need to be in there to, you know, other minor details uh, around making sure that NAICS codes lined up. And it was really very, very helpful. So we made a number of changes uh, related to the NAICS code structures uh, in, uh, in all of the draft RFPs. We asked industry for feedback on we were looking potentially to do CPARS ratings at the master contract level, which is not necessarily something that we do on all of our IDIQ contracts and got feedback from industry that in general, they thought that would be a positive thing. Regrettably, the CPARS system um, doesn't support uh, the kind of evaluations that we would like to do um, on this RFP, mostly around timeframes. Uh, CPARS requires annual reviews for at the IDIQ level for a contract of this size. We didn't think that really made sense. Um, so I think we're going to pivot and, and do a, a different approach. Uh, in terms of how we're handling performance assessments. Uh, in the RFP itself, there is a whole slew of contract deliverables, reporting, performance requirements, and that kind of thing. So I think we're going to work with industry in developing a performance scorecard that will be shared between our contracting officers uh, and industry so we can manage performance jointly throughout the, the ordering period of the contract. So that was a really meaningful round of dialogue with industry around that. Um, industry agrees, hey, having something to fall back on in terms of us being able to say we performed really well overall in the Oasis Plus contract, they viewed as, as a good thing. We just need to think through the mechanics and, and put something in place that's going to work for everybody. So that was great. Got a lot of feedback about some of the draft sustainability requirements. Um, we were leaning forward a little bit, a little uh, ahead of um, a draft rule that is out for comment right now around greenhouse gas reporting. Got a lot of feedback from industry asking us to, to maybe roll that back a little bit and let the rulemaking process work. And then we could go forward and include uh, additional greenhouse gas uh, reporting requirements in the RFP. Uh, we did make an adjustment there, in particular for small businesses. Um, they felt that they really needed a little more time to understand the rule and its impact on you know, their operations and reporting and that kind of thing. So we really appreciated feedback from industry on that. And we will pace that work to align with uh, that rulemaking process. We also spent a lot of time talking about teaming and clarifying language in the RFP around teaming, uh, especially in the small business space. There is some complexity around if, if a small business does decide to team and no one has to have a team uh, to be able to propose on Oasis Plus. But if they do choose to team and want to leverage the qualifications of one of their partners, there are some, some specific things that need to happen as part of the offer process. So we got some good feedback around our language needing to be a little clearer. So we cleared that up. Also around qualifying projects and experience levels. And then finally, we also are including uh, supply chain risk management uh, plans as part of the contract deliverables. That is something that is new to industry and got some good feedback around, hey, can especially on the small business side, can you help us understand what it is you're looking for? Are there templates? Can we support them with maybe some training in terms of what the government's expectations are um, as part of that, that supply chain risk management planning? So um, those are some of the key areas uh, that we got feedback in and spent had some deep discussions on uh, with industry. 
I really appreciate the outline of everything. And, and there's a bunch I'd like to go back to. Let me, let me go back to the CPARS piece. Cause I think that's, it's, it's been a, a bit of a bugaboo for a lot of companies and the government over the last, you know, three, four, five years. Explain a little bit more about what the challenge was to use the current system. And what are you thinking about how, and then we'll talk about maybe the performance scorecard approach a little bit. We wanted to do the reviews less often than annually. And right now the system doesn't allow us to do that. We would have to like put in some dummy report or something. And that didn't seem to make sense on a procurement of this size, given the number of contracts that we're going to be managing. So it was really that challenge, which is a systems challenge. And so that's really the discussion that that we were having really annually. You want to be able to give contractors time, right? To compete on task orders, win task orders, perform on task orders, in addition to the other laundry list of deliverables, right, that we have in the contract. And for an IDIQ, right, it's going to take you a number of years to be able to demonstrate that performance. So CPARS just didn't neatly line up right to the performance um, reviews that really we want to do for the program. I want to touch upon the other piece that you mentioned, which is about teaming and clarifying language around teaming. Uh, did this also include joint ventures in there as, as part of that teaming discussion? Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. That's right. And we're not doing anything fancy on Oasis Plus uh, related to teaming or joint ventures. We literally are adhering to the standards of, of the FAR that allow this and to the rules in particular for joint ventures um, with, with SBA. So there are no additional requirements that we're baking into teaming, but there's a lot of complexity there. So we do spend quite a bit of time talking about that complexity and making sure that everybody understands if you're going to come in with a team and claim credit, right, from one of your teaming partners, they have to be a small business um, or a similarly situated small business, you know, that kind of thing. Tiffany Hickson is the Assistant Commissioner for the Office of Professional Services and Human Capital Categories in the General Services Administration's Federal Acquisition Service, speaking there with Federal News Network's Executive Editor, Jason Miller. You can find more of Jason's coverage on this topic at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come on Federal News Network, how Customs and Border Protection hopes to streamline inspections of import shipments. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Customs and Border Protection wants to improve its detection of illegal and dangerous shipments coming to U.S. shores and simplify procedures for low-value, low-risk packages. It's asking industry for help in expanding what the agency calls the Section 321 data pilot. We got the details from CBP's Executive Director of Trade Policy and Programs, Brandon Lord, who spoke to Federal News Network's Tom Temin about the pilot. And you have had a project going now for several years, a pilot project called Section 321 data pilot. Tell us what Section 321 is of and what you're trying to do here. Sure. And so we certainly could have come up with maybe a, a more catchy name. But you know, Section 321 just refers to uh, the process or the procedure with which low-value shipments enter the United States. These are shipments under $800 or less. And the, the pilot looks to capture new data from new sources that traditionally, as a customs agency, Uh, we have not usually had. So we're not talking about container shipments here. We're talking about things that might be individually sent. Yes, we are talking about uh, small packages, uh, often shipped direct to U.S. consumers, 
that are coming into the United States. And to give you a give you to give you an idea of the scale of the of the challenge we're faced with, roughly two million of these small packages enter the United States every single day. U.S. Customs and Border Protection is responsible each day for screening those packages and determining which ones we want to physically inspect versus which ones we want to uh, allow to enter into the United States. And what is the routing? That is to say, some of it must come from international mail carriers, but some of it must come from other shippers. I mean, you've got a lot of sources. Yeah, great, great question, Tom. You know, it comes from it comes from everywhere. So international mail uh, enters the United States through all manner of air carriers, including uh, passenger carriers uh, in the bellies of those planes. These small packages come through your traditional express operators like FedEx, UPS and DHL. They also get trucked across our northern and southern borders. Uh, logistics providers on both sides in our northern border and southern border specialize in, in bringing these into the United States. So it, it comes, we're even seeing it now in ocean ships uh, showing up with these small packages. And just a detail question before we get to the expansion, and that is packages that are coming on commercial carriers, say passenger planes, you know, common carriers, would those have been screened already by the equivalent in other countries of TSA, and therefore maybe you can skip over those? Yeah, so I'm not an expert in, in TSA's you know security and screening requirements. Our purposes, the reason why we're looking for packages, is very different than what the TSA is doing. So uh, it's not something that we're able to, to really leverage. But again, for kind of details on that, you'd have to get with, with TSA. Yeah, I'm just saying that if something had a bomb in it, that probably would have been detected by the originating nation before it even got on the plane. But you're looking for things that might pass detection for that kind of danger, but be illegal for some other purpose. Yeah. So so the, the things that we're looking for when we screen is everything from narcotics, illegal firearms, counterfeit products that could harm the American consumer. So counterfeit makeup, counterfeit auto parts to other products that maybe are evading other U.S. trade laws. Recently, we've seen a lot of biologicals coming in through the express environment where they're misdescribed on the documents we receive. We find these biologicals and no one in our in our own scientific labs or even the CDC can tell us what that substance is. So, so really scary stuff can come through this environment. All right. And tell us about the data pilot. What is this and how can that enable more efficiency here? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the data pilot, we really started our efforts on developing the data pilot in October 2019. And we first announced it publicly in the summer of, of 2020, limited to nine participants. And what the data pilot seeks to do is to is to give us, Customs and Border Protection, better visibility into what is in the package itself, who actually sent it, an actual person who actually sent it, and where's that box's final destination, right? One of the things that we're doing under this pilot, which is which is really uh, fascinating for us, is we're gathering non-traditional data, as we call it, from newer supply chain parties that maybe didn't exist 30, 40 years ago. You know, the last time we really looked at the regulatory environment in this small package world was in the 1970s. Well, that was before e-commerce and that was before online marketplaces. So under this data pilot, we're now gathering data from some of those new entities on a voluntary basis and better able to identify which packages are lower risk. 
We're speaking with Brandon Lord, Executive Director of the Trade Policy and Programs Directorate at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. And what about individuals that might mail something, say fentanyl or a gun with some ammunition, just from individual to individual that would not show up in these commercial types of uh, situations? Yeah, well, so so keep in mind, we're only talking about you know packages that are mailed across the U.S. border. So packages mailed domestically, say from Los Angeles to Reno, Nevada, or New York City, that is not within purview of this of this pilot. No, understood. Um, but someone could okay. mail something like a I don't know a Kalishnikov, say from somewhere in Eastern Europe to someone in Texas. Absolutely, they absolutely could. So, you know, as part of this pilot, what we're able to do is to identify those shipments that, frankly, are more legitimate than others. Uh, so participants in this pilot have seen their hold times or their, the number of packages that we place on hold redu- reduced by 90 percent, which allows our officers, which we have a limited number of resources, to focus on packages that we know less about. And so we have a variety of ways to detect what appear to be misdescribed packages, you know, nobody's going to mail that Kalishnikov and say on the shipment, it's a Kalishnikov, right? They're going to call it something else. And we have ways to sort of identify that. But again, the, the challenge is across the country every single day, we have over 20,000 CBP officers working at our ports of entry and 2 million of these small packages are coming in every day. Our resources are limited. So this is an effort to explore in partnership with the private industry, new ways to better identify lower risk shipments. So outfits can volunteer from overseas to be part of the screening program, and they would, under this program, supply that data to CBP in advance of the shipment arriving. Correct. And not just entities overseas that are interested in this, too. You know, So there are supply chain and logistics partners that specialize in moving these packages, and they might just specialize in moving them into the United States and then putting them into the domestic mail system, which is completely legal. There's there's no there's no laws broken doing that. Those entities uh, have expressed interest in in joining customs brokers who help move freight every single day on behalf of their customers have also expressed joining. Online marketplaces that sell directly to consumers have expressed joining. So there's a lot of interest in this program, and we're excited to see where we can take it. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of complications in the supply system. I mean, someone could ship a package directly to someone, or they could send it to a distributor here, which would then remail it or resend it by some means to someone. And so the data they give you, this is what's in it, this is who the original sender is, this is the final destination. How do you verify that? Yeah, so that's that's a great question. And so we, we are making heavy investments as an agency into uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. So there's some there's some tools around in those areas that help us verify that. But the other the other pieces of information that we're gathering, things like a product photo off the internet or even a website listing that shows the product for sale. All that information actually helps us too from a from a risk management standpoint. And what we're what we're building towards is being able to take some of that information, that product picture or that web listing of the product, and cross-referencing it with our own X-ray scans or or other inspection tools that, that we have at the ports of entry. Would it be accurate to say then at this point you are testing the methods and sources to see if they work? And then would you anticipate scaling this up to everybody that ships something here. Yes, that that is absolutely correct. So part of what we do anytime we're looking at changing a regulatory environment, and in this case we are, is to pilot 
different ideas with the with the trade community with the private sector because it is a partnership you know with over two million small packages entering the united states every single day we need the private sector's cooperation and partnership in helping to identify lower risk and higher risk shipments this is a low cost way for us to test that on a voluntary basis with with those that are interested in partnering with us which better informs how we move forward with regulatory changes. And by the way, do some of these shipments, just as again my own curiosity, do they include things like food items that might be prohibited or plants or turtles that have fungus on them or, you know, you can just, your imagination can run wild. Yeah. It, it, the short answer is yes. If, if you can think it, you know, we recover everything from what appear to be blank state IDs, you know, IDs that are, are going somewhere in the United States, maybe to be stamped and turned into false IDs to animal products, to plant products that could carry pests and really harm our own domestic producers, to some of the products I mentioned earlier, counterfeit auto parts, counterfeit cosmetics, narcotics. You know, to give you to give you a sense of it, you know, last year, last fiscal year, over 70% of our agency's narcotic seizures occurred in this environment. And over 80% of our counterfeit seizures, where we've seized something for being counterfeit, uh, occurred in this environment. We seized last year over 22 million counterfeit items as an agency across all our modes, 80% of those in, in small package. Brandon Lord is Executive Director of the Trade Policy and Programs Directorate at U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Speaking there with Federal News Network's Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come on Federal News Network, how the armed services are trying to tackle the problems of sexual assaults and mental health overall within the ranks. But first, simulated pilot training has come a long way. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Back on the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. Pilot training outside of the cockpit in a simulator is known as synthetic training. It's getting more sophisticated and realistic. For more, at this week's Sea Air Space Conference, Federal News Network's Tom Temin spoke with an Air Force synthetic training officer with the Air Combat Command, Major Joseph Silverio. And in traditional sense, it's everything that's not flying the actual airplane for an aviator like myself. So traditionally, that would be your sims, uh, your simulator training, newer emerging technologies allowing synthetic adversaries or projected adversaries into the live uh, arena or some type of VR into the cockpit uh, is the avenue or most of what uh, I'm trying to pursue. So the simulator itself has really come a long way then, it sounds like, from the days when there was just a blue screen outside the window and it looked like sky? Absolutely. We still have those levels of trainers. So your your basic uh, HOTAS, uh, hands-on throttle and stick, uh, and button push and trainer with a single maybe touch screen in front of you, all the way up to your full 360-degree dome. Clamshell, as they call them, not the greatest fidelity on the visuals, but that gives you the most immersive training. And then to the latest uh, iteration of scenario and environment generation is called the joint simulation environment uh, that the Navy is developing. So we're looking to also adapt that to Air Force platforms. Got it. The first time someone comes in and they are deemed to be qualified as an aviator, that is someone inside an airplane, does that include simply the left seat pilot or co-pilots or different 
jobs aboard that might be, say, a transport? Yes, yeah, so having a fighter background myself, uh, F-15E Wizzo, uh, Strike Eagle in the Air Force, that would be my perspective, but I do have a slight understanding of how uh, crew mentality works. There are, when it comes to simulator training, I'm being brought up to speed on front-end and back-end trainers, so for your crews or your heavies, they have the pilot training simulator, and then they also have the crew, essentially, simulator for your controllers, your Intel, whoever's on the back of that airplane doing their job, they have both sets of those simulators, sometimes working in conjunction, otherwise sometimes working just one piece of that as well. And these simulators move, right? I mean, they have pitch, yaw, roll, diving, climbing. For most fighters, no, and that's one of the limitations oh. as we want it to be as immersive as possible, uh, but there are but for most fighters, no, you don't get that. The G-loading, uh, as we call it, that's the one thing that you can't replicate in the sim, that you can in the in the jet. But for not quite sure on all the crew heavies, but I have been in one that does have some motion. It's not 360 degrees or complete, but it, there are crew two-place heavy airplane that do have some motion to them. And so what do people gain from synthetic training? What are the limitations of it to the point where you got to get behind the you know, real cockpit at some point? Right. Right. I was uh, going to say behind the wheel. That's probably not the right word. <laughs> I think it would have gone well. I think everybody would have understood that. But, uh, yeah, that is a really great question. The biggest limitations that we have in the live arena, so flying the airplane to actually get training, coming up really is the airspace size, limiting both our weapons uh, range and the adversary weapon range. So we can't really train to as far apart as we need to for realistically anymore. The other pieces of that we're the sim currently has an advantage is just the adversary replication. So we don't, whether we don't have the intel or the airplanes to accurately and operationally represent the enemy airplanes or even enemy ground threats, which are also limited by the airspace size over the ground that they take up. So with those three pieces, those are kind of the advantages of doing things in the simulator or trying to bring that technology into the live arena for a live synthetic we call it live virtual constructive, blended training, whatever you want to call it, bringing the synthetic advantages into the live arena so you can sure. still get to that decision-making under G for fighter pilots, but while you have the, well, you meet the operationally representative of the Red Forces. Yeah, and there are companies that have old fighters that they've refurbished that, that will play adversary for you, but that's expensive, isn't it? Correct. I don't have the details on the numbers of our adversary air contracts, but yeah, it's not cheap, and the... Next portion of that would be trying to get more advanced, more modern fighters for them, which would obviously be more expensive. But that level of training where someone is actually flying the plane and there's an actual flying adversary, that's the very end of training when most of the work has been done in either solo flight or in simulation and synthetic. To me, that's more continuation training. So once you, yes, I guess toward the end of your training continuum, when you are combat mission ready, your everyday training would be up against a live adversary to keep your skills at the top level that you need them to, to be able to go to combat as required. And while someone is undergoing synthetic training, what kind of metrics are you gathering about that person. So that would, uh, another avenue that the Air Force Research Laboratory has been pursuing for uh, a number of years, and they call mission essential competencies. So we, in a traditional fighter flight debrief, you would have to, the instructor would have to pull all those, look at the tapes, look at certain points in time to, do we shoot our missiles on time? Do we not go into the enemy threat range? And we'd have to pull that out manually. With some technologies that the Air Force Research Laboratory is pursuing, AI, machine learning, or simulator we would be able to pull that data automatically, especially out of the simulator. If we can put that technology into the live arena as well, that would be great. It would save time in debrief, obviously, and then 
as a combat aviators or whatever operator essentially is uh, building those metrics, building those competencies. It can be a constant back and forth update of, well, we don't really do that anymore. Here's our new set of skills that we need to be up on top of. And besides the reaction times and whether they steer correctly and operate the engine and all the myriad of tasks, do you also take measurements, again, in synthetic training of their biopsychological responses and that type of thing? Not at the leading edge of the CAF. Some of those technologies haven't made it into the, uh, the jets and the cockpits yet, but that is how, from my understanding, how some of the undergraduate pilot training pipelines have accelerated graduation. Gone from a 11 to 13 month process to graduate somebody just ready to fly any Air Force airplane. They've incorporated biometric feedback analysis of things in the cockpit to record either eye movement or vital signs to determine uh, kind of those states of human being. And we've been able to, I don't know the current pipeline on a, a program like that, but it, it, I think it has dramatically shortened the undergraduate side of training to get people into their final MDS. And how much time in sim training or in simulated training or in synthetic training does a airman, air person need before you let them into a cockpit? Or does it happen simultaneously? For undergraduate pilot training, as well as your, your FTU, your follow-on training, your basic course, once you get to your actual, your combat-ready airframe, typically you'll do anywhere from three weeks to three months of just ground school, academics, engines, systems, hydraulics, whatever you need to just to understand the airplane. As you're kind of going through that, you'll get introduced to the simulator so you can find all the buttons, figure out how to turn the engines on, how to turn the lights on, all those different types of things. And then... Once you have at least a basic understanding of that, some understanding of tactics or um, procedures in the airplane, how you fly it, how you take off, how you land, how you fly a pattern, then we let you get in the airplane, kind of. So it's anywhere three to six months in some type of ground school with simulators, and then you actually get into an airplane. And how close are the trainer fighters to the actual fighters? So (laughs) Training jets, I should say. The T-38 is both the undergraduate uh, pilot training phase three for fighter-bomber track pilots and aviators. It's 50 years old, almost. Well, actually more than 50 years old, I believe. Uh, One of the oldest jets the Air Force has in the inventory, so we are pursuing a newer fighter, looking at the, I believe it's going to be the T-7. That's been in development a while. Yes. So it, it takes a while to get new airplanes, new trainers, but we understand uh, it's a very old airframe, just like my background, this Strike Eagle, 40 years old, the Eagle's itself 50 years old, so continuing to drive, get new airplanes out there. So the T-38 itself, a very basic trainer, two engines, very small, very small wings, so you learn how to basically go fast, make decisions at very high speeds, and then between your T-38 and then whatever your final fighter MDS is, that's really it. It's T-38, introduction to fighter fundamentals, and then you get into your MDS, and that's where you go back to ground school, learn this new airplane, learn how to fly this new airplane, and then go on to your operational squadron for mission qualification training. And the first time you pilot an F-15, F-16, or an F-18, whatever the case might be, what's that like the first time <laughs> the controls are in your hand and it's real? For myself, as a Wizzo in the backseat, controlling the airplane is not my primary duty, but it is... I remember the first time I flew a T-38 and moving that fast was a quite a unique experience, an exhilarating experience. And then graduating to the F-15, it was about the same thing. <laughs> you just, it's a big, giant window, 360 glass office, and that's, I don't think there's any better job. All right. And one thing I always wondered, when you fire a missile, do you feel it? 
from the jet? Yes, absolutely. So the biggest, the largest uh, air-to-ground ordnance that I have dropped is a 2,000-pound weapon, and you can feel that. Not on the stick, not on the controls at the time it comes off, but I'm sure that that changes the aerodynamics of the airplane, and that there's just a lot of weight uh, coming off the airplane that's going to change the way it, it maneuvers. So All right. even in the back seat, you can feel the, the thunk of let the airplane letting go. Air Force Major Joseph Silverio is a synthetic training officer for the Air Combat Command. He spoke with Tom Temin at this week's Sea Air Space Conference. We'll post this interview at Federal News network.com slash federal drive subscribe to the federal drive wherever you get your podcasts still to come on federal news network how the armed services are trying to tackle the problems of sexual assaults and mental health overall within the ranks it's the federal drive with tom temen here on federal news network i'm eric white filling in for tom Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom. After a year of rising suicide and sexual assault rates, the Defense Department is expanding its mental health programs. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore is here to tell us about some of those initiatives. Alex, how are you doing? Great, thanks. How are you, Eric? Very well, very well. So what is the DOD doing with mental health programs? Tell us all about it. Well, as you mentioned, the suicide rates and the sexual harassment rates, the reported rates, that is, have been rising for quite some time. And this is something that the Defense Department really wants to see changing. So they had a a review done. It was called the Independent Review Commission on Sexual Assault in the Military. And just a couple months ago, that review released 82 recommendations for things that they could do to improve the situation. And part of the DA... The DOD is really looking to to move on those recommendations. And in their 2024 defense budget request, they're asking for $637 million in funding just for sexual assault prevention alone. It's It's been a big issue with a lot of the leaders in hearings for the uh, House Armed Service Committee, the Senate Armed Service Committee. They're talking about more needs to be done, that it's a demoralizing effect and it hurts readiness. And very importantly to the services, they think it has a negative effect on recruiting and perceptions of what it's like to be in the armed services. So here's Army Training and Doctrine Command's Lieutenant General Maria Gervais talking about that. When you look at it, the harmful behaviors are something that is very damaging to us as an Army. It doesn't represent who we are or what we stand for. And, you know, if you think about it, moms and dads who entrust their most precious asset, their sons and daughters, to us, they expect to be, for them to come into the Army to be able to gain a skill to also be taken care of and not face a threat of some type of harmful behavior. And what are some of the specific plans for solving this problem? Well, from the top level, Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin approved the establishment of a dedicated prevention workforce to help strengthen DOD efforts to address suicide prevention and other mental health problems, other harmful behaviors. And they're hiring 2,000 prevention personnel to kind of beef up that service. The Air Force has a program for training and resources called Sexual Assault Prevention and Response, and that's where they offer resources for for airmen. And then each of the service academies has their own training program. They kind of had a damning report that came out about a month ago uh, based on an anonymous survey showing that one in five women at service academies had experienced unwanted sexual conduct. In the Army, General Gervais says they've started training for sexual abuse 
prevention all the way in boot camp. And so we have focused, changed the first two weeks of basic combat training, and we call it yellow phase. But what we found as we changed those first two weeks, and what we've seen is we've seen, um, especially in our training base, we've seen a reduction in terms of um, sexual assault, sexual harassment. We actually have a, an initiative called Sexual Assault, uh, Sexual Harassment, where our young soldiers volunteer to be on this program, to take leadership positions so that we can start policing ourselves. We're talking with Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore. So Alexandra, aside from sexual assault, part of the DOD programs are suicide prevention and mental health in general, correct? That's right, Eric. And the stigma of mental health problems has been one of the issues for the military. People in the service are worried about going to their senior leaders or even to health professionals and saying they have a problem. They're worried that it'll hurt their future promotions. And they're also very worried that it would hurt, uh, say, their security clearance. So the Defense Department is trying to remove that stigma and make it more of an open process for people to seek health. The problems are real. The stress of deployments, the absences from families, frequent moving, uh, stress from combat, they're all things that kind of bring on mental health problems. So the Defense Department wants service members to, to get help when they need it. The Navy, for example, just released something they're calling the Mental Health Playbook. It offers a format for discussing mental health up and down the chain of command. So Commanders know what to do and how to deal with someone who comes to them with a problem and someone who wants to talk about a problem sort of has a format for going about doing that. And the playbook also has resources for where to go for mental health and maybe a roadmap for how the process should work. Here's Vice Admiral Richard Cheeseman. He's the Navy's top personnel official. The budget prioritizes several initiatives that allows our Navy to maintain a culture to fight and win, including tools and education for our leadership specifically to address mental health, suicide, and sexual assault prevention and response. We released our mental health playbook last month, which supports command leaders in minimizing mental health issues, but when they do occur, to empower them with the resources to connect sailors with appropriate mental health care at the right level at the right time. With proper use, the playbook enables everyone in a command to share an understanding of how to conduct mental health preventive maintenance. So that's an example of one of the branches. And I just have a question for you. Do all the services have similar programs? They don't all look alike, but they're all doing the same sort of things. And you can find web pages where you can go. And if you feel like you've had sexual harassment problems, there will be a web page for each of the services that show you who to talk to and what to do about it. And they're trying to make that very accessible, first anonymously through, say, though a website and then person to person through the chain of command. All right. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lore, thank you so much for your reporting. And we'll check back about this issue with you a little bit later on in the year, I'm sure. Thanks very much, Eric. You can find more of Alexandra's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com. 57 past the hour. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.
Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, April 4th, 2023. Seven minutes past the hour. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom Temin. Our producer is Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up this hour of the Federal Drive, simulated pilot training has come a long way. Plus, how Customs and Border Protection hopes to streamline inspections of import shipments. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, human migration patterns, the billowing drug trade, allies nervous about China. It's all picked up the pace for the U.S. Coast Guard. At this week's Sea Air Space Conference, Federal Drive host Tom Temin got the lowdown from the Coast Guard Commandant, Admiral Linda Fagan, starting with the Coast Guard's 2024 budget priorities. So we're really excited for the continuing support that we're getting from our authorizers and overseers, particularly with regard to the major acquisition programs that we have going on. Uh, Polar Security Cutter funded through uh, long lead time for the third money in the budget for OPCs uh, six and seven, uh, Waterway Commerce Cutter, uh, Program Office for Great Lakes Ice Breaking Capacity, and uh, we just continue to remain committed to building and recapitalizing the fleet of ships that we need to operate for the nation, money as well to help us accelerate into a single fleet of 60s, right, the 65 uh, helicopters. Uh, not gotten any younger, and uh, accelerating towards a, a single fleet of tail fold, blade fold 60s as part of the investment. We do continue. We've got support. We need additional support around infrastructure investments. All those new ships have, you know, peer facilities that right. need upgrades and um, buildings and ensuring that you know, the Coast Guard force has state-of-the-art equipment, not just ships and aircraft, but also some of the, the support and maintenance facilities that they need to operate from. And by the way, just a year ago when we spoke, you had been nominated to Commandant, and now you have been in the job roughly a year. Do you like it? Yeah, so it was almost exactly a year ago the nomination was announced publicly. That The world shifted a bit for me at that point. It's been, uh, it's been an incredible 10 months. It is truly a privilege to advocate for the service and uh, advocate for the, the workforce uh, that we have. It's, uh, it's, there's a lot, but uh, I wake up every day energized by what our men and women do to contribute to uh, not just the organization, but the nation. And let's talk about recruiting. That's where you get the raw material to keep the yep. Coast Guard going. And the armed services have had mixed success, let's say, in the yep. last couple yep. of years. Coast Guard a little bit ahead of the game. Talk about some of the recruiting efforts you've got to keep yeah. that raw material coming in. Yeah, so uh, one of our challenges is just uh, increasing awareness of citizens that there is a Coast Guard and this is the kind of work that we do as a Coast Guard. As I talk to young recruits at Cape May, they almost always say, I had no idea. I didn't know the Coast Guard existed, but now that I found you, I'm excited. I know what the value proposition is. I can't wait to serve. Recently, we were at boot camp two weeks in, hardest part of boot camp. And the master chief said, hey, how many of you want to spend a 20-year career? They all raised their hands. So the talent is there. They understand their purpose. We need to just increase awareness. We're also reinvesting in recruiting capacity, opening nine new recruiting offices. We've opening and starting junior ROTC programs. So it's kind of an all-hands-on-deck, multiple-prong approach to uh, recruiting. We need to inspire the youth of the nation to serve uh, serve in uniform, serve the federal government. These are honorable professions. 
there is a sense of camaraderie and community and value that you derive from serving, and we need to help enlighten that for young people. Sure. Ships, engines, guns, what's not to like? Yeah. Yeah, cyber. We've got cyber professionals. It's a great time to be in the Coast Guard. Yes, cyber is a big part of the operation, too, now, just as it is kind of across the armed services. Yeah, no, we have uh, we've been investing in our own cyber capacity. We've stood up a cyber rating. We're establishing a cyber protection team on the West Coast. Uh, we've been investing in hiring civilians to help with the conversation between cyber experts and marine transportation system experts so that we can be relevant and engaged with our, our critical port partners and commercial partners in that realm. And I wanted to get back to a little bit of detail on shore facilities revitalization. You mentioned that as a top priority to take care of the new float gear and flying gear that's coming your way. What are you hoping for in the next few years here? Yeah, so as the major acquisitions are being fielded, we have investments that we need to make. Seattle is where we will home port the new polar security cutters. That facility uh, is not sufficiently sized to, to take those new ships, and so we're, you know, we're working forward there. Charleston is a key part. It's going to be a you know, key port for us as we continue to through the, the final fielding of the national security cutters. And then, of course, the offshore patrol cutters are coming. And so up and down the coast, we have footprints where we've got ships now. The new ships are bigger, deeper, wider, bigger power demands. And so all of that is, uh, is you know, here and now for the service from an investment standpoint. And I wanted to ask you about the migrant surge, which has affected Homeland Security, other components. How has that affected the Coast Guard in the last year or two? Yeah, so the, the maritime uh, migration uh, numbers have definitely been up starting last fall. And, you know, the Coast Guard's role in this, this is life-saving work. It is incredibly dangerous, perilous for people who take to sea to attempt to, to migrate to the country that way. And we have moved Coast Guard assets to ensure that there's not loss of life in that uh, in that realm. But it has been a all hands on deck for us and our other uh, DHS entities. I, in fact, I just met with the Homeland Security Task Force Southeast team, integrated interagency team uh, in Miami, and it is an incredible group of dedicated professionals uh, that are that are working to mitigate risk in that uh, in that challenge. And if you encounter a boat with people that are coming not legally, illegally. What is the Coast Guard's duty there? To turn it back? To turn it over to CBP? To send yeah. it to the... So what when, happens? when we encounter a migrant vessel at sea, the, what, what we work to do is to get people off of the vessel and onto the Coast Guard ship. The vessels typically are not particularly seaworthy and then provide a level of, you know, just humanity and care to individuals, food, water, uh, medical attention, and then they are repatriated to the country, their country of origin. Got it. And that is definitely on the rise these days. Yeah, it's, uh, we've had a bit of a weather break. You know, the weather gets a vote in this, too. And so the last, uh, last several weeks have been uh, not, not particularly significant, but we're going into a good weather uh, time period, and we'll see, uh, see what the numbers look like. And you are the first female commandant. What are you hearing from that set of Coasties? Yeah. What do they tell you? Is there kind of a back channel to, <laughs> to you in that sense? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's interesting being uh, first female commandant, first female service chief, and uh, uh, I really don't like talking about myself, and so I always will pivot to, hey, let's talk about the organization. But it is an opportunity, and it has been a privilege to be able to 
uh, elevate awareness and advocate for this service. We are a global Coast Guard. We're the world's best Coast Guard. I'd argue we're the world's best military in what we do. And uh, so it has just been great to have the opportunities to then engage, not just with Coast Guard workforce, but ally and partners with what our value proposition is. The strategy says that the Coast Guard wants to sharpen its competitive edge. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so that's, that is getting after uh, technology, data, all of the things that, uh, you know, we've, we've been working to internalize into the organization, but we've got work still to do. The workforce expects a, uh, you know, modern experience, and that, you know, that includes how we, how we train, how we treat our data. We're, we have an incredible amount of data that we've got now, but it is not in a governance structure that allows us to do the kind of machine learning, artificial intelligence, predictive analytics that will serve us well in whether we're talking about uh, the migrant maritime migration challenge, the counter-narcotics effort in the East PAC, our leadership role in IUU fishing, all of that becomes enabled as we get after some of our competitive edge work. And a, I guess a subcomponent of that is the financial systems modernization, yep. which was launched, but it's not totally there yet. There's been some tough GAO looks. Yep. Do you expect that to be righted? And yeah, so we are fully committed to having a successful uh, financial uh, system. We're working with DHS and a contractor to ensure that that system has the functionality that it needs and that we need to ensure that we're meeting our fiduciary responsibilities to the American public. All right. And just to, again, the Austal acquisition, that's the offshore patrol cutters. How's that going? That's been just a short time. Yeah. So, right, the phase two recompete for the offshore patrol cutter was awarded to Austal and we, you know, OPC is our top priority. We're committed to, uh, you know, fielding the phase one OPCs and are equally committed to phase two and, uh, you know, look forward to seeing those ships actually in operation soon. All right. And how are they powered? And and you're confident that that power source will be reliable? Yeah. As I say, Argus is about, uh, Argus should go in the uh, water soon. And, uh, you know, once we get, once you get a ship in the water and you start to do sea trials, we'll gain all kinds of insights. I think we've got a great design, great quality ship, and we're really looking forward to, to bringing them into the fleet. Do you feel confident in the supply chain industrial base, the DIB as they call it, in in Maine DOD, they're having trouble, you know, with shipbuilding capacity, but you're on a whole different channel. So uh, we are and we aren't. It was an interesting discussion at the panel around shipbuilding capacity and ship repair capacity, and there is a defense industrial base aspect to that. This, you cannot view any of that capacity in isolation. It's not a Navy issue. It's not a Coast Guard issue. It is a national security issue and ensuring that the workforce is level-loaded at each of those yards are absolutely critical to our own national national security and national defense. Coast Guard Commandant Admiral Linda Fagan speaking with Tom Temin at this year's Sierra Space Conference. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still to come on Federal News Network, how Customs and Border Protection hopes to streamline inspections of import shipments. It's the Federal Drive with Tom Temin on Federal News Network. I'm Eric White filling in for Tom.